We're going to pick up then in the 12th chapter. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He brought it up and it grew up with him and his, with his children. He used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's a couple pieces to this story, and I warned the Sunday school class that if I preached on the whole story, we'd get out of here at about 1.30. So I'm not going to preach the whole story. First of all, for anybody who says they don't let their kids read something because there's sex and violence in it, this passage tells us that they should be avoiding Scripture as well. Secondly, there is a trait in many of us that we see in David when we read Scripture. And that is, as believers, we often read ourselves into the good guy role. How many of you read this passage as though you're David? Maybe Nathan? Maybe an observer? We read the Good Samaritan and you know, we want to be the good Samaritan, not the robbers. We read the story and we want to put ourselves in the place of the people of Israel when they're good. But man, when they get it wrong, we just don't understand how anybody could be that dense. Surely we're not that dense, are we? And so what we have here is David being very, very, very human. And this passage creates problems for us because David is so very human. He is a hero. He is legendary. He is the one whose house is always going to be on the throne. He has a covenant with God. The Messiah is going to come out of his house. David is a really big deal. We tell our kids about David and Goliath, and frankly, every sports season, somehow there's a David who slays a Goliath. It's penetrated our cultural language. We remember the anointing of David as king. We trace his lineage back to Ruth. We 
Remember that he plays musical instruments to soothe Saul the savage beast. And we attribute most of the Psalms, where many of us turn in times where we need comfort, to David as the writer. He is a bigger-than-life figure, and he is the protagonist in this story. So it starts off already with a backhanded comment about David's behavior. It is the spring of the year when kings go off to war, and David is not off to war. David has sent people, he sent his armies, he sent Joab as his general, but David is not off to war. David is just hanging out in Jerusalem. The, the, the Hebrew word is actually the word for sitting. So it says he remained and it's actually sitting. And then you'll catch that when we move into the action of the story, did you catch when he's getting up off his couch? In the late afternoon, when the king arises for the day, What do we say to teenagers who arise in the late afternoon? Right. And so then he goes up on his roof and he looks out over things because he's got the highest place. And a lot of our artwork over the years has portrayed Bathsheba as being on her roof. The text doesn't actually say that. And I would invite you to consider if you would haul water with no indoor plumbing all the way up to the roof to take a bath. And David sees her, and David thinks she's gorgeous. And David decides he needs to have her, so he tries to figure out who she is. And she is named here, but she's also named in a very odd way, because she's named as being both of her father, Eliam, and of her husband, Uriah, and she's given her name. She doesn't get to do much in this story. She doesn't get to say anything. We never hear a word from Bathsheba's perspective. So imagine, if you will, what happens next when David sends people to go get her from her door. Think about how that could, could play out, right? Imagine right now how that would play out in China. Xi Jinping says, come. Am I ever coming back? Right? We don't know if it's servants of the palace. We don't know if it's soldiers. We don't know who David is sending. And we don't know really how she responds or what she thinks. But I would invite you to think about that part of this story. She gets back to the palace. David lies with her. She gets pregnant. The part we skipped has David conniving after he finds out she's pregnant. So his first thought is, let me get Uriah back here on a weekend furlough from the battlefields, and he can lie with his wife, and then everybody will think it's his. Uriah, the Hittite, the non-Hebrew, the non-Israelite, says, no, I can't do that. My, my companions are out here in the field. I, it's not right for me to do that. David's first plan is scratched. David's second plan does come to fruition. He tells Joab and the other generals, just put Uriah in the front lines. And when he gets into trouble, just pull back and let him die. 
we started counting and got to at least three commandments that David had broken just in about 15 verses. Three of the top 10, as a matter of fact. And uh, that's kind of when we get to Nathan's entry into the story. Nathan is a prophet. He is kind of the prophet. He is the successor to Samuel. He's going to have to tell David no again later in the story where uh, David says, hey, let me build God a house. And Nathan is the one who goes, well, first Nathan goes, yes. And then God comes to Nathan and says, no. And then Nathan goes back to David and says, no. Um, And so Nathan comes to David. And again, we don't have a ton of the setting, but it seems like David is alone, or at least as alone as you get to be if you're king. And Nathan tells him a parable. It's one of our earliest parables, really, in Scripture. It sounds a lot like the other parables. We have a lot of parables where, for instance, a man has two sons. That's the prodigal son. We have a lot of parables where there's a choice between A and B. Um, And we have a lot of stories coming up to this where there's two sons, two men um, in the story. And so that, that part would be kind of familiar. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. One has a lot, one has a little. And Nathan keeps on telling the parable. The rich man has a guest. The rich man doesn't want to use any of his stuff to host the guest. So he goes and gets the poor man's lamb. Doesn't say he pays for it. Just says he goes and gets it. And that gets David up in arms. He is, his anger is kindled. That's that great image of anger is fire. His anger is kindled. As long as the Lord lives, this man should die for this. And he should have to repay it four times over because he robbed him and he had no pity. Step out of this story for a moment. Let's go to the parable of the sower. Y'all remember the parable of the sower? Sower's walking along, scattering seed on the ground. How many of us think that we're the rocky ground? Right? How many of us want to be the stuff in the weeds? How many of us want to be fertile ground? Right? Okay, so that, that is kind of this challenge here. David is seeing himself as the poor man. Very humanly, he's seeing himself as the poor man. We like an underdog story, don't we? That's why it's fun to hate on the Yankees. We like an underdog story. And then Nathan delivers the line, perhaps, of David's reign. You are the man. I kind of imagine him pointing a finger You are the man, not the good, you are the man, the bad, you are the man. And then he has a word of God, word from God for David. I anointed you king. I rescued you from Saul. I gave you riches and wealth. I gave you two nations to rule over. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you that much again. 
and you had to go and do this thing. And the way, the way God lays it out is that David both killed Uriah by the sword, killed, killed him with violence, and then stole his wife, and then killed him by the sword of the Ammonites. So God is really ticked off about this killing thing. It's easier, right, to read ourselves as the aggrieved party or the part that we think is going to come out on top. It's not always faithful, though. I think, honestly, when we look back on, for instance, the parable of the sower, we can find times in our lives where we have been parched, hard ground that the word could not fall on and penetrate. And we have been the weeds and the brambles as well, letting life strangle the good news out of us. And there have been times when we have been fertile soil, but it's not always that we're fertile soil. We read the story of the people of Israel like we've done this fall, and we want to celebrate the exodus. We want to celebrate God's deliverance. We want to celebrate faithfulness. We want to laugh a little bit about how troublesome and quarrelsome those people are in the wilderness. How they'd rather go back to Egypt than be free. Can't they see it? We don't want to talk about the fact that there are people in the land already when they get there and they go in and take it over. But to be the people of Israel, to be the people of God in the good parts of the story, we kind of have to be willing to be the people of God in the bad parts of the story too, right? Like we don't just get to suddenly go, oh, that's not us. That's not me. That's not us. That's not how this works. And so our challenge reading scripture is to have the Holy Spirit or somebody like Nathan come up and tap us on the shoulder every so often and say, you the man, and it's not a good thing. We go through life and we pick out good guys and bad guys. It's easy on the, the Westerns from the 40s. The good guy has a white hat and the bad guy has a black hat. And that's all you need to know. In reality, is it ever that simple? And so we have this challenge. Part of it is admitting who we are as, as the people of God. We are the beloved, called, chosen people of God. And we are the people of God who repeatedly fall short of the mark God has set for us. And it's not either or. It's not like on Tuesdays, I'm the good guy, and on Wednesdays, I'm the bad guy. It can change in a conversation. It can change in a heartbeat. And so we are all of that, and we need all of that to be reminded to us sometimes. Part of what Nathan does is retell the story of what God has been to David. Remember when Joshua did that last week to the people? Like this happens a lot in the Old Testament, and I think sometimes this is something we as Christians have forgotten how to do, but we need to find a way to do it again. 
Who has God been to us? What has God seen us through? How have we been the people of God? We can talk about it, you know, as a congregation. We can talk about it as individuals. We can talk about it as families. We can talk about it as communities. Um, But we have to retell that part of the story and the whole part of the story, which we're not really good at. I mean, I'm going to be honest. We talked in Sunday school about how long it has come for us as a nation to even start talking about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And yet this story is preserved in Scripture, and we are talking about David's foibles. 3,000 years later? Wow. The story is in there for a reason. It offsets some of the David worship. It offsets some of the, the perfectness of David and the wondrousness of David. And it's a reminder to all of us that we don't just get to hear the parables and be the heroes. We have to imagine that we could be the other side of the coin, the other side of the piece of paper, that we could be the black hat in the story. Our challenge, of course, is to do better than that. We're not always good at that. And so when we tell these stories, we tell the stories of who we are as the people of God, we have to have more powerful conversations. So one of the conversations that is ranging like this, just in the Presbyterian church and in the Christian churches, just in North America, just in North America, is the story of residential schools for Native Americans. At the time, the way it was couched, the way it was phrased, is that we were bringing them salvation and enlightenment and abuse and pain and loss and death. And now when we look back, we can't tell that story the way we used to tell that story, but somebody had to tap us on the shoulder and say, "Um, that ain't really how it happened, David, Presby's, Methodists. Catholics, Lutherans. We have presbyteries and synods throughout the country that are making reparations for being built on the labor of slaves. We have congregations and presbyteries handing land back to Native Americans. We have this odd story that only comes when there's some accountability when somebody has tapped us on the shoulder and said, you're the man, you're the man. Are we going to be perfect going forward? No way. Not a snowball's chance and you know where. At the same time, we stand a better chance of doing better. Psalm 51 is sort of David's response to all this, and it's problematic because it's just about him and God. It's just about all the things he did wrong between him and God, but who else did he impact? Bathsheba, right? Uriah? Eliam, who's got to wonder what's going on with his daughter? From here, God will 
curse David and it ends up being more of a curse on Bathsheba, in my opinion. And she's going to lose that child. That child is going to die. Later, she'll have more kids with David and David will name her his beloved wife. Imagine being Bathsheba living in the palace. Just imagine that dynamic. And next week, we'll read about their favorite child, Solomon. But David's life goes rapidly downhill from here. He goes from being the war hero and the musician and the king and the king of legend to being one whose own sons want to kill him to take the throne, to running and hiding, to losing people he loves dearly. His life really falls apart after this moment. And let's be honest, as people of faith, we know people, we've been people whose life has fallen apart. Part of our challenge is to carry that as part of the story as well. If David just remains perfect little David, right? What does it seem like? Well, it seems like you got power, you get away with anything. God loves you, it'll all be fine. How many of us still believe that one? And so our lesson from this incredibly convoluted, involved story is to read as though we could be any role in the stories of Scripture, to find ourselves and to allow ourselves to be the bad guy, because sometimes we are. And to take that and let us lead us into something new. It's why we confess sin every week. It's why we ask for forgiveness every week. It's why we say the assurance of pardon every week. It's both needed, it's hopeful, it's powerful, and we forget it an awful lot. To God alone be the glory this day and forevermore. Amen.